0: Hello there, Paul. I'm Richard O'Brien, and you're listening to Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Darnielle. Today, we're in 1991, with Running Away With What Freud Said. Before I got into the Mountain Goats, my favourite writer was Graham Greene, a Catholic atheist invested in liberation theology whose novels tapped into a deep, inarticulate human vein of hope against the despair engendered by the prospect of eternal damnation. In a passage he liked to quote from Browning, his characters experience the inner conflicts of the honest thief, the tender murderer. Another favourite line, In the lost boyhood of Judas, Christ was betrayed, summarises a broadly empathetic approach to the problem of evil. When Green died in 1991, Concepts like Original Sin and The Divided Self would largely have been news to me. But years later, when I was looking to read about the life of the author behind Brighton Rock and The End of the Affair, the final volume of Norman Sherry's epic biography had recently been released. I was keen to understand more about the kind of mind that could construct such vivid portraits of shame, sin, and salvation, but a cursory Google search revealed Sherry's project to be sufficiently contentious that it didn't seem worth the risk of reading its almost 2,500 pages. Critics described the biographer as ludicrously self-aggrandizing and focused on all the wrong things, primarily Green's somewhat squalid sexual history. One passage in particular, recounting Green's death, was cited as the epitome of perverse over-identification. Worms breed, and the handsome man with stunning blue eyes is host to a thousand sliding, lascivious creatures, eating our flesh, turning us gradually into a sort of human jam. My first response when I read that, to be honest, was, fair enough. Maybe I'm a goth at heart, but the lusty worms are a trope dating back to at least the early modern period. Were they gratuitous then? Is death less awful now? I suppose I also had a lot of sympathy for the profound psychological unease which must surely arise when a biographer has to confront the mortality of the subject he has spent three decades of his own life pursuing. That said, I still haven't read the book, not even in the three volume hardcover set which my mother, without knowledge of any of this, bought me for my 18th birthday, a fact which I feel pretty Catholic about myself. Sherry was being faulted, I guess, for losing sight of the work in the life, always a pitfall of the literary biography. This project is explicitly not a biography of John Daniel, and yet the singer's lyrics, and especially interview comments, have engaged so deeply with the dialectic between personal narrative and fictional storytelling that it's difficult to keep the life out of the frame. I plan to start this entry by confessing a mistake in the last one, having realised that running away with what Freud said, the first song on the first Mountain Goats tape, Taboo Six: The Homecoming, totally belied my own assertion that the poem songs Daniel has just begun to write don't draw at all explicitly on the suffering he had personally gone through. Then I realised that it wasn't a mistake, exactly, that I couldn't have known any of this if I'd heard the song in 1991. When I ask Mum on the phone if she can find the photo I've used in the newsletter, she tells me I'm somewhere between six and nine months old in it. She knows that because I'm sitting up by myself, and I'm touched that she would even remember this kind of developmental milestone. But I don't know if many other people could have known it either. The proliferation of interviews and recorded live comments online in more recent years, since Daniel's first batch of explicitly autobiographical material appeared in 2004, has made it difficult for me as a younger fan to reconstruct how much information was known about the singer's background in the early years. Liner notes from the 1998 reissue of Zopilotti Machine do, however, suggest a long-held frustration with biographically oriented, post-romantic descriptions of what songwriters do. These songs are all pages ripped from my diary, which drips blood. I have been alive for over 2,000 years. I was born in at least seven different countries. None of these songs were written. They are all spontaneous eruptions of directly experienced personal pain, deeply felt and wholly unvanquishable. Each time I sing any one of them, I further aggravate a wound which will never heal. It's nonetheless the case that this song, and thus John's whole recording career, opens with a person in Portland who isn't quite themselves. As Alex Russell puts it, in a song by song project far more comprehensive than this can hope to be, you've got all the pieces there to construct hundreds of songs that followed. But at the time, Daniel is writing in the spirit of deliberate occlusion, first conceiving of running away with what Freud said, as a song that no one could make any sense of. On-stage comments in 2006 and 2016 have since clarified its biographical grounding. The song describes the morning in March 1986, when its singer emerged from a long alcohol and heroin binge that I had gone on when I was 19, and I lost a lot of time. Believing, post-blackout, that he's somehow paid his rent twice and has no money left, Daniel spends the next three weeks starving himself in his apartment, eating sprouts and spoonfuls of peanut butter as my entire daily lot. When he's finally able to psych himself up to go outside, having first combed my hair and put on my hat and my sunglasses, without which I did not leave the house, later referenced in unicorn tolerance. It wasn't cold anymore, as it had been. Spring had come to Portland. The planters on the corners were full of flowers, and they saved my life. These events are all referenced fairly directly in the short lyric, where new flowers contribute to a sense of the city truly living and the wider world breathing. Woke Up New, 15 years later, paints a similar scene, as the world, in its cold way, starts coming alive for a figure stepping outside for the first time the morning after a breakup, Things are different, whether because your partner has left, or because you no longer recognise your own body. Whose Bones Are These is Daniel's response to the mysterious click he had in his hip for two years after whatever happened in The Long Blackout, and never have I felt more like Norman Sherry than when googling John Daniel hip click to confirm my understanding of this information. Things are better, too. In response to a more welcome, natural flourishing than the kind he feared last week in going to Alaska, the singer feels ready for a new, more viable future to arrive. But before the situation leading up to this kind of catharsis has been fully left behind, that knowledge might at first be cold comfort. Maybe the need for this kind of distance plays into the fact that when Daniel started making music, he fought long and hard against the idea of anything I wrote being confessional, because what in this world is worse than a confessional singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar? Even without the ethical complexities of navigating your own trauma in art, this seems a rational enough position for a somewhat contrarian Southern Californian teenager to adopt in the late 80s. Alone, aged 22, in his Norwalk apartment, he pulls a pluralized band name from bluesman's screaming Jay Hawkins' raucously theatrical Yellow Coat precisely to avoid the assumption that I'm trying to introduce you to John Darnell. to make sure people will know I am telling stories. In later years, the singer has started to see things differently. You can't tell a story without putting yourself in it somehow. There's no way, right? Any story you tell comes out of you. You can't bleed somebody else's blood type. I won't say that that sounds exactly like what Freud said, but it's probably a good enough summary of the kind of statement the younger singer might have found reductive, not only in the world of music, but in pop psychology. The song title comes from a phrase John heard on a TV talk show by Dr. David Viscott, a Frasier-style call-in shrink who offered glib solutions to complex problems. Its implication, once taken deliberately out of context, might be you can go anywhere you like with any of the many things Freud said, but that this kind of psychoanalytic digging beneath can take you away from an experience actually in front of you, or from the images an artist has chosen to make present the flowers, the buses, the fresh blood pumping in your veins. I watch a couple of Viscount's videos on YouTube. He's less skeevy than Dr Oz, but seems to be peddling the same brand of snake oil. He concludes one phone session, which must have been recorded in 1992, by telling a suicidal caller to cheer himself up by watching Aladdin in theatres. His own life seems to have fallen into shambles soon after. The doctor died in unclear circumstances in 1997, drained of money and prestige, bereft of all his guru's trappings, like one of the washed-up wrestlers or film stars in whose stories Daniel now specialises. You've got to wonder what Freud would have to say about that. At the end of every episode, i pulled pull together a few thoughts that I couldn't find room for in the main piece, in small shards of shrapnel. Running away with what Freud said, in the line, "'Whose bones are these? God knows' sees the first appearance in A Mountain Goat's Lyric by God, one of Darnielle's many prominent recurring characters. It's worth reading Dr. David Viscott's LA Times obituary in full for the description of scenes from a marriage which sound like they would easily fit into a verse of Oceanographer's Choice. And we don't know which of Freud's writings the Doctor was referencing, but let's imagine for a second it was the interpretation of dreams. On the Twitter link that's in the newsletter, you can find a rare insight into one of John Darnielle's, in which the dream protagonist, who mainly observes, Gets stuck in an air duct in extremis at risk of starving to death, and crawls out to try to teach President Trump's children empathy by stressing that fear is a universal human emotion. I'm no Dr. David Viscott, but it feels like there's a lot packed into that closing phrase, there's a blurring between the character Berger and myself. If I'm in the dream, I'm him. This episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the newsletter. You can no longer easily buy Taboo Six The Homecoming, on which running away with what Freud says features. I've linked within the post to a YouTube upload of the song itself. The full album is on YouTube too, but since no money goes to the band or the original label, Shrimper Records, you might like either to buy newer work or to donate to a charity John has previously supported, Nextdoor Solutions. Thanks to John Donnell for letting me quote from his songs, and to Camilla Chen and Dave Talbot for the drawing of Indiana Sawgrass on my arm in the header image. The sources of all other quotes are either linked to in the main text of the newsletter or given in the footnote references. If you've noticed an increase in production values this week, that's all down to some training from Steve and Adam at Bengo Media, so thanks guys. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the Substack and tell your few remaining friends. This week, Richard is getting into 7 Minute Eggs.